Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. For the fellowship, uh, thank you for the host I've got. Thank you for asking me back. I spoke here 13 years ago. And as the room was turned around, I think we were over there, but I had no idea I was supposed to report back 13 years later. (laughs) Uh, But I'm thinking to myself, God, you guys and gals that are new, you have no idea what's happened in my life since 13 years ago. Uh, It just, it's phenomenal. I couldn't have sat down and made it up. I mean, it's, it's not me. You know, it's, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I've been sober since October the 5th, 1978, and I'm still growing spiritually. And uh, I think that's important because I was talking with Tom after one of the meetings this morning, and I told him just a few weeks ago I'd uh, got lost in some lies that robbed me of my happiness, and I started living my life based on those lies. Same old lies, just revisited all over again. You know, security, money, health, all the same old stuff. But it started to rob me of my happiness. And I know I could pray about it, I could talk about it, I could do all this stuff. But for me, when I get like that and I can't talk it out anymore, i got to get that paper and pen out and write that stuff down. There's something about writing that stuff down and going, listen to this, Linda. I need about five minutes of your time. And I, I did this... Uh, Inventory with this guy that I sponsor. He's been sober about five years less than me. And I asked him if he would listen to the inventory, and he said, yeah. And I says, can you keep your mouth shut? (laughs) And he said, yeah. I said, that's good, because if you don't, I'll flatten your tires. (laughs) I I might be sober a long time, but sometimes I'm not a well man. You know what? And uh, uh, we went up to a prison meeting. We were on the way up to the penitentiary, and I read diet about five or six things that were just... Keeping me awake at night. I hate being unhappy. It just kills me. I, I can't stand it because I know what it's like to be happy. And when I'm unhappy, it's just totally unacceptable. And uh, I started getting depressed. And I'm really not a depressive person. That really started getting me. And uh, we got up to the prison meeting, and I, I, I spoke up there for a while. And this guy came up to me after the meeting. He says, I really like what you said about 90, 95% of this is about attitude, your attitude toward life. And he says, uh, I was in here about a year and a half. And I realized one day, you know, if I'm not going to be happy doing this time I'm doing, this is like a death sentence. I says, you know what? That's a great way to look at that. That's fantastic. I says, I agree with you. It's the same way out on the street with me. I says, when are you getting out? He goes, oh, I'm never getting out. He says, i got 126 years. I just figured a year and a half into it, if I wasn't happy, it was like a death sentence. You know what I mean? And it made the stuff that I had written down on this paper that I read to this guy, this seemed trivial. I wanted to go, oh, just kidding, God. I, I really just complaining. You know, I just didn't really mean it, you know. And uh, But I'm still growing spiritually, and that's my main deal each day is to get up and see how I can grow spiritually. I, it's not like you get sober five years or 20 years, and it's like, okay, everything's like that, and now I can kick back and just watch other people. I have to stay actively involved. I can't stay sober on yesterday's spiritual experience. I have to be actively involved and participate in my own recovery and my spiritual experience a day at a time. And uh, I just want to let you know, if you're new, I'm still growing. I'm still growing. I like what I see. It gets better and better and better. Um, I grew up in the 60s and in the 70s, and uh, 
For younger people today, puke smells the same now as it did then. You know what I mean? People are just as goofy today as they were back then. It's just I happened to grow up in the 60s. And it was a wonderful time to grow up in. I loved it. There was always something going on. Always. I remember coming home from school in the third grade. The president got killed. Wow, somebody shot the president. You know what I mean? And uh, a few years after that, somebody shot his brother, a senator. Then they shot Martin Luther King. There was a lot of shooting going on. They went to the moon. It was just one thing after the other in the 60s. And that's the era I grew up in as a kid. I'd come home and watch television and they'd watch Vietnam. They'd bring those body bags in on them helicopters night after night on Walter Cronkite. 6.30 evening news. I'm watching the campus riots across the country. The Democratic National Convention, they're beating the hell out of these people. I'm just It was always something going on on college campus. There seemed to be this social unrest in the country in the 60s. And I, that's the era I grew up in. And I, I'll just watch this. I go, oh, I'd like to jump into some of this somewhere. This is, this is exciting. I mean, I just thought this was fantastic. Every day I'd turn TV on and see what was new. And uh, I had a great childhood. I loved it. I, I got along well with people. I, I didn't really feel geeky. You know, you hear a lot of people say, I was a round peg in a square hole. Or I, I didn't feel like a whole human being till I drank alcohol. I can't say that. I was just your typical kid out in the suburbs. Didn't, not a disadvantaged life or anything like that. I had some strange relatives. <laughs> now, my mom was a drunk. You know, she's alcoholic. And uh, I remember back then, her drinking started to take off, and she's about five foot three, five foot four. And she was weighing about 190 pounds, had one of these big smocks on, looked like a small circus tent. And she was drunk all the time, drinking quarts of Carling Black Label and eating Black Molly. She'd just walk around like this all the time. Mom, pa? She was always on edge all the time. But I didn't think anything about it. I thought, well, that's Mom. Mom's got her problems. And uh, I, I, that's Mom. I didn't think anything about it. And uh, she had a, a father who uh, was a drunk. He wasn't an alcoholic, but he was a drunk. And uh, he'd like to come down our street with his yellow cab buddy drunk. I used to drive my father crazy because, you know, on a dead-end street, everybody knows everybody. And here's my grandfather, drunk. He gets out his yellow cab. They're both drunk. He pops the trunk on the yellow cab, and he's walking around the neighborhood with a possum on a leash. And there's drunk. You know what I mean? And my, my brother was six. I'm about nine. I'm going, isn't that cool? Grandpa's got a possum, you know. And my dad's going nuts. Jubal, get your father. God, he's out there. What do the neighbors think? And we're going, this is great, man, you know. But we didn't really think that this was dysfunctional or wrong or goofy. It's like, oh, that's Grandpa. He's a lot of fun when he comes over. <laughs> and uh, didn't really think much about it. And uh, But I, I have been visiting relatives in places like Cell Block 6 and Building A my whole life. We've got relatives in mental institutions and penitentiaries. And my mother's mother lived out in the state mental institution, it was called Longview in Cincinnati. And uh, we didn't know this till I got sober years later that she was in there for alcoholism. They didn't know what to do with women back in the 40s and in the 50s. And she lived in there 40 years of her life. She died from ovarian cancer at 64, never knowing what her problem was. And they just kept her so drugged out 
We'd all, you know, a lot of people go to Coney Island and go camp in the summer. We go to the state mental institution to visit family. <laughs> Everybody pile in the car, mom, aunts, cousins, uncles. Let's go out to the state mental institution. Gonna get grandma and get her some coffee. And we'd go out there and we'd be sitting there and she'd come in just spitting and babbling. You know, it was kind of sad, really, because she couldn't communicate. The stuff they had her on made her tongue like rubber. And this, this, this. She's spitting on herself. And my mom would say, oh, she said she wanted coffee. I go, how the hell do you get coffee out of that? You know, and when my mother drank, she acted like her mother in a state mental institution. And we just thought, well, you know, maybe that stuff runs in the family. You know, I just, you know. And uh, it was alcoholism. We didn't know what it was. And Dad did most of his drinking outside the home. And uh, I come to fear that little man. One day he'd come home, you're the best kid on the block. The next minute, you're a son of a bitch. And what are you doing out of bed at 6 o'clock at night? Just... You know, the unpredictable behavior like uh, this gal in Alateen was talking about today. And uh got to be about 11 or 12 years old, and I remember my dad taking me and my brother out. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I remember him taking me and my brother out in the backyard saying, you know, if it wasn't for you two boys, I'd be long gone. Your mother's crazy. You know that. <laughs> and it appeared to me, it appeared to us that she was. So I was walking around like this on him black mile. He's half drunk all the time. And I didn't know this till I got sober, but Dad kind of wiped his hands of any responsibility of the family unit falling apart. He got all the spotlight on Mom and just slipped out. And uh, I, I didn't think much about that. I just didn't. I thought, well, everybody's got their problems. You know, I just everybody's got their problems. And I just didn't see that we were really a lot different than anybody else. So I didn't look at it like I was disadvantaged or you know, a victim of anything. I just didn't see life that way. And in 1967, there was a a girl. She was a senior at the high school I went to. I was a seventh grader in junior high. And a guy across the street had turned 16. He just got a new, he's got a, a car. He was allowed to drive a 64 Impala. And he said, this girl over at the high school wants to know if you want to come to her party. I said, who? He said, you know, Mary that lives across from uh, the high school, and she was 18. I went, Mary wants me to come to her party? Wow. You remember when you were 13 and people were 18, they had beards and breasts? I mean, just, they want me to come to their party? You know, that was opportunity. I went, yeah, I'll go to their party. And it wasn't like I was looking to fit in. I wasn't trying to be older. I was, I guess I was flattered that they invited me. And I wasn't even looking to go to the party. And I got to the party, and it's 1967. And her brother was in Vietnam, and he got into the habit of sending her pillowcases of Vietnamese pot in the mail once a month. <laughs> and uh, I'm an innocent 13-year-old kid. You know, I'm walking there, and I, man, what is that? It doesn't smell like anything I know. Oh, come on in here, kid. You'll like this. Come on in here. And... Uh, you know, I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I don't tell this story because it upsets people. It wasn't like I was 13, and this is 1967, and I'm going, this will piss them off in AA in 2006. <laughs> I didn't know I was coming. Did you know you were coming? <laughs> It's just a story. There's a point to this story. So God, don't go, oh, son of a bitch is talking about drugs up there. 
It was an innocent thing. And I got high on this stuff, and before you know it, everything's technicolor. <gasps> oh, look at this. And my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. And they're laughing at me. I'm like their pet monkey. You know, I'm 13. They said, look at that. He's got cotton mouth. I said, do you have anything to drink? We go into the kitchen, and they, it, was, it was ridiculous how stoned they were, just goofy. And I'm looking at all this. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. Somebody had dropped a can opener on the floor. They thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. They're rolling. They're crying. They're laughing so hard. I go, mm. And this guy goes, here, here, drink this. And it was a big bottle of Bally High wine. One of those big bottles. Did you hear that? They went over the crowd like that. Whoa. I still get chills thinking about today, that big bottle of Bally High wine. And I'm cracking the top on. I'm, couldn't stop sucking on it. It tastes to me like high C or fruit punch. Kind of like Tahitian treat. And I just kept hitting it, and they're still laughing about that can opener. I said, I have never seen anything like this in my life. Look at these people. And it just seemed like a few seconds went by, and the bottle was empty. I had drank that whole bottle. And they all looked at me, and they said, you're supposed to pass that. <laughs> I'm 13 years old. I go, nobody told me. You know, I'm, just, I'm a kid. I don't know anything. And you know, I, I didn't immediately become obsessed. Oh, i got to do that again. Jesus. Uh, I just thought, wasn't that something? They invited me to their party, and they want me to come back. That is fantastic. You know, and I didn't know the reason that I drank that whole bottle of Bally High until I got to AA, was that I had a physical allergy to alcohol. Once I start to drink, there's no stopping. I thought I drank that whole bottle because that pot made my mouth dry. I knew nothing about alcoholism. I was 14 years old, 1968, and this guy says, here, try this, man. I said, what is it? He says, LSD. I said, what does it do? He said, it makes you see things that aren't there. He said, they're called hallucinations. And uh, he said, you know, uh, just remember what you see is really not there. And, you know, don't get too excited. And he said, for heaven's sakes, don't point out to everybody what you see, because you're the only one seeing it. I said, get out of here. I said, you mean if all these people are doing it, nobody's seeing the same thing? He goes, that's right. And he said, if it gets a little too hairy, don't worry about it. It'll wear off in about 13 hours. I said, I have got to try that. Let me do that. And uh, did that hundreds of times. Somebody should have told me there was something wrong with me then, but I, I thought it was great. I mean, it was, it was fun. It was fun. And you name it, I did it. You know, if crack would have been out there, I'd have tried it. What's that do? Makes you feel good once. After that, you just want it. Let me try that. You know, you'd have had a different speaker, and I, all sunk in, you know, 95 pounds. I, you know, I was, it was like a, going to the candy store. What's that taste like? What's that do? You know, I was just a young kid. It was the 60s, and it seemed like that's what the kids were doing then. I, I used to love to stay up all for days doing speed, because I thought speed lets you be in control. After about three days, when you can't sleep, you can't eat, and you can't pee, you're not in control. <laughs> it's a little bit too late by then. You go, you know, I don't think I'm in control anymore. 
if you got any southern comfort, I've got to come down. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, the whole time this, this so-called innocence was happening, there was always some alcohol there in the background. There was always alcohol, always bottles of Boone's Farm apple wine, Strawberry Hill, Southern Comfort, Chianti, Stroh's beer. There was always something to drink. And I thought I was drinking that because of the stuff I was smoking. It had nothing to do with it. I didn't know that. And my drinking started to progress. By the time I was 16 years old, I'm running away from home. My emotions are calling the shots. I wasn't, I, I couldn't think straight. And uh, I got into an argument with my mother one day and left. Just left. I left Cincinnati with nine cents in my pocket in February with no coat and hitchhiked to Florida. Seemed like the right thing to do. Snap judgment. Bye. And went four states away. That's how I react to handling problems. I go four states away. And uh, got homesick. I, I, I was a uh, busboy in a Chinese restaurant. It's uh, 1971, I'm 16 years old, and I got hair out to here. And I had one of those big afros where you turn your head and the hair just kind of catch up to it. You remember this? And uh, I've got this big afro, and I've been working in this Chinese restaurant going, egg roll? <laughs> and I'm the only white guy in there. Everybody else is Chinese, and they're laughing their head off. I was, I, here I was. I was entertainment for somebody else again. And... Uh, after about two months of living down here, I was, I was 16, I was a kid. I got homesick and I came home. I came to and I came home. And then I ran away the next time. About three months later, things weren't going my way, so I found out when things don't go your way, you just leave. You, you go away and the tension goes down. But I didn't know I created more problems. I was hitchhiking with a guy that was a guy from the neighborhood. He had hair down to here. I've got hair out to here. <laughs> And we're in Cordell, Georgia, and they don't like you if you don't live in Georgia. And they, they came up to me, where we were hitchhiking, and this guy couldn't have been but 5'5", five, five, about 300 pounds. Had the mirror glasses on, and the closer he got to me, the bigger my hair got in his glasses. I went, oh, this is not good. This is not good. And he looked at me with that hair like that, and he goes, you white or black, boy? And uh, I had just seen that movie, Deliverance. <laughs> I thought, do you know what they're going to do to us? <laughs> oh, God, this isn't good, man. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, I found myself in situations like that. I couldn't explain how I got into them and ran away from home again. Make a long story short, started getting in trouble with the law. Went into the Navy at 17 years old, finished the 10th grade of high school, got in the Navy. Alcoholism says, got to leave. Gotta go. Can't drink in jail. They're going to put you in jail. So I went into the Navy. They like drinking in the Navy. I got in the Navy. They put me in the bottom of a ship, down the boiler room. I thought, join the Navy and see the world my ass. I'm in the bottom of this ship. This boiler's going, I think I made a bad decision coming in here. And I didn't know that I didn't make that decision. I didn't know that I was being pushed around by an obsession to drink. And that the obsession to drink was calling the shots on where I was going to go in my life and who I was going to be with and how I was going to live. But I didn't know that. I thought I was making bad choices in my life. Did 18 months in the Navy, got out on flat feet. There's nothing wrong with my feet. They look flat. Uh, but I didn't know that alcohol said, can't stay out here in the ocean in this ship. Got to go. 
You've got to get out of here. I got out of the Navy, went home, and now I'm starting to have to rationalize and justify to my friends. I thought you signed up for four years. What happened? Well, it was the roll of the deck, sh- the deck plates on my feet and these, these shoes. and uh, You know, I'm just lying and lying and lying. And the truth was, if I knew it and could have told them, was that, well, you know, I was being pushed around by an obsession and I had to leave. But nobody knows they're being pushed around by an obsession. You know what I mean? But I've yet to know a drunk that doesn't come up with a fast answer. Because we can't let people know that we don't know. They'll put us out there where grandma's at. <laughs> and we'll be going spitting and babbling asking for somebody for coffee. I had gotten this one job and I, I, for somehow I was able to go to work for a month or two and all of a sudden I started to drink and I couldn't stop for a couple of weeks. I just didn't show up. When I drink, anything else interferes with it. And the guy that hired me called me up and says, you still work here? I go, no, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you called. I was just going to call you. Uh, I'm going to truck driving school. I'll be in to pick my check up. I'll see you. Thanks for calling. Click. And I thought, wow, that was fast. Truck driving school? Where'd you come up with that one at? I mean, but you can't let them know you don't know why you're drinking like that. You know, you can't say, well, I'm drinking and I can't stop. I don't know when I'll be in. You can't tell them that. You don't really know that. You know something's wrong with you. But alcoholics kind of come up with fast answers, man. And I always use this example. I remember passing out with my pants down around my ankles one night at a party. What? We're at AA. And the next day, this girl says, Why was your pants down around your ankles last night? I said, Because I was hot. And I noticed my pants were back up, and I thought... What was going through my mind as I told her that is they were down around my ankles. And who pulled them back up? You know, I had not a clue. And, but you got to have a quick answer because you can't let them know because they'll put you out there where grandma all that. And uh, my drinking started to progress I, even more. I, uh, uh, I was coming in at 3 or 4 in the morning, tearing my mother's house up, destroying her house. You know, cigarettes burning her hardwood floors and throwing lamps and fans and breaking doors. Just... Stuff that drunks do, and I was doing it. And My mother had joined Alcoholics Anonymous in 1971. I thought they ruined her. And I'd come in at night, she'd go, oh, you have a problem with your drinking. I said, those people at eight, they're crazier than you are. You know, just because you can't have a drink once in a while doesn't mean I can't have a drink once in a while. And uh, it never occurred to me for years how I must have made her feel to watch her son killing himself and knowing there wasn't anything she could do for him. And uh, she got to a point, she, she had to talk to a, uh, a family counselor and her, a social worker and her sponsor, and they finally convinced her that the best thing they could do is kick me and my brother out. That was the best thing they could do because by allowing us to live there and treat her and talk to her the way we did as drunks and tear her property up, what she was doing is saying, it's okay. It's okay, you can continue to treat me like this. You know, and she says, uh, you can't teach him to treat women like that. That isn't the message that you're supposed to give him as your mother. You need to kick him out. Let him go. If you love him, you're going to let him go. You're hurting him by letting him stay. And she did. She kicked us out, changed the locks, got restraining orders on us. We weren't allowed within 100 feet of the house. We were nuts. She was afraid of us. And I got... Uh, a sleeping room on 15th and Scott, which is Skid Row in Covington. I had a bare mattress on the floor for a bed and a cardboard box turned upside down for an end table. 
I had a light that hung from a wire on the ceiling. I had plastic curtains with grease on the blinds, and I had a four-pane window, and one of the panes were broken out. And I would, I'm the only guy in the building under 65. I'm the token hippie. I'm 21 years old, hair out the ear, bib overalls on, nothing underneath. And I couldn't see anything wrong with my life. I just couldn't. I thought, I'm in between jobs. That's all, well, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we laugh about that now, but that's what it looked like to me. You know what powerless over alcohol and life unmanageable looks like to me? It looks like I need money. It looks like I need a girlfriend. It looks like I need a job. It looks like I need an education because I just have a GED. You know, it looks like a lot of things, but it doesn't look like alcohol. It doesn't look like alcoholism to me because I don't even know what I'm looking at. And uh, I would come in drunk in that building, and everybody used the same toilet on the second floor. Everybody had the same toilet and the same bathtub on the second floor. There's 10 of us living in the building. I think my room was like $18 a month or something like that. And I would come in drunk at 3 or 4 in the morning, and alcohol was still working for me. I thought, God, isn't this great? Nobody to bitch about my drinking. This is wonderful. You know, I used to hear, oh, you're drinking, you've got a drinking problem. I don't have to listen to that no more. This is great. And I'd turn the light on, and those roaches would scatter in that room, and I'd slam the door, and I'd put my, my change, my six cents on my end table, my cardboard box, and fall down on the, on the mattress. And every once in a while, my, my, my mind would start to try to clear up. You know, I'd look, I'd look at that mattress and alcohol would say, oh, don't worry. We'll get you box springs and sheets and pillows one day. You just hang in there. And I go, okay. Or I look over at my, my, my end table, my box, and I go, a box? A box? And alcoholism would say, it's okay. It's a member of the wood family. We'll get you real wood. You hang in there. And go, well, alright. Or if you live where I was living, that I just described to you, with those roaches, you go out, and every once in a while you kind of come to, and there's something doing this real close to your eyes. See, antennas on the roach. You ever get one of them? And alcohol said, everybody's got to have a place to live. <laughs> alcohol was still working for me. It never occurred to me that I was there because of my drinking. Not one time did it ever occur to me that it was my drinking. You can't help people like me. You can't talk to them about their drinking because they don't think they have a problem with drinking. They think they need money, job, girl, all that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I need, I need, and I don't have it. That was my problem. I need. And uh, January 18th, 1977, this is nothing up here, this part of the country, but that night it was really something. There's 25 below, and I had been in a bar, and it closed, and I had an old Navy peacoat on, no, no hat, no gloves, Bib overalls on, shirt, shoes. And uh, I was out there, and the windshield was 70 below. And I, I walked out of the bar, and the door closed, and, man, nobody wanted to be around me anymore because I was bizarre. They would put me in their car, and somewhere between where they put me in their car and where we were going, I would do something like grab the steering wheel and jerk it all over, you know, and the car's going, Hey, hey, what are you doing? Hey, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. I said, don't do that. Well, let me out then. You know, I just, I was nuts. I was goofy. And uh, so when the door closed, they go, just leave them alone. And I walked about a mile and a half, 
Somebody out of kindness of their heart picked me up, went downtown to Cincinnati. By this time, it's about four in the morning, and uh, the car drove away, and it was like there was nobody else on the planet. Windchill 70 below, nobody around. Well, i got to get over the river and back over into Covington a couple miles from here. I better get going. And I'm going over the, over the river, and, and the Ohio River was frozen that year. People walked across the river, and I'm out there. And not once did it ever occur to me that it was my drinking. Not one time. What was going through my mind is, man, I wish those buses were running tonight. I finally have 30 cents to get on one, and they're not running. Damn, that just seems to be my luck. I'm just an unlucky person. Not one time did it ever occur to me it was my drinking. Not once. And uh, springtime started warming up. I turned 22 years old, and uh, it was kind of balmy like it is now, first week of April, and I'm sitting out on this little stone wall in front of the building I lived in with these old men. And I had a little dried puke on my bib overalls on, and I'm watching couples go up, up and down the street on a Friday night, and I'm going, I wonder why I can't get a date. <laughs> that Charles Manson look, this crazed look. <laughs> Like, no, if I had a girl, I'd be all right. And uh, if it was just Skid Row, I can adapt to that. Drunks adapt real well. What I couldn't adapt to is I had become hopeless. I remember standing with my face pressed up against a chain-link fence of a parochial schoolyard at 9.15. The kids were out there in a recess. And I'd just finished a bottle of wine, and my face is pressed up against the fence. And I just wet myself. And I'm looking at these kids, and I'm looking at myself, and I'm going, man, I'd give anything to be eight or nine again. I'd give anything to go home to my mother and say, Mom... Mom, I didn't mean to turn out to be like this. Give me another chance. I didn't mean to call you those names in your kitchen. I never meant to threaten to kill you. I never meant to threaten to burn your house down. I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, but I never meant any of that. But I knew what I was going to do is go back up the street and get another bottle of wine like I had done at quarter to nine and drink another bottle. And that was existence for me. It was like I was on one of those old black-and-white B-rated movies at 3 in the morning, and I couldn't turn it off, and I was in it. Alcohol quit adding color back into my life. I couldn't escape from where I was at anymore, and I knew that life was never going to get better for me. It happened to other people who were lucky, but I'm not lucky. And I was graced, like the speaker last night was, with a a spiritual awakening, and it, it, it introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you'll never guess who I called my crazy mother. You know, when I, we all thought she was crazy, but even sick people can see the change. You know, mom was about this tall, and she weighed about 190 pounds from drinking all that beer, and she started going to AA, and we're getting sicker, and mom's getting better. And mom's starting to lose all that weight because she's not drinking all that beer. And she's starting to fix her hair, and she's putting makeup on and wearing mini skirts with go-go boots. It was the 70s, I thought... Go ahead on, Mom. Check that out, man. You know what I mean? I could see the change, and the whites of her eyes were white, and her hazel eyes danced. They sparkled. And even though I saw the change, I thought, yeah, she's pretty, but she's still crazy. And that's the person I called. And she introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And uh, I went to my first meeting on April the 10th, 1977. I was 22 years old. I didn't know what alcoholism was. I was graced with being exposed to you and the fellowship Alcoholics Anonymous. I went in there and I had no underwear on, no shirt, and no socks. I had an old pair of worn-out earth shoes with bib overalls on. I smell funny. I look funny. My hair's out to here, and I don't have a clue what alcoholism is. All I know is something says, go where your mom goes. Go where your mom goes. And I went in there, and uh, there was a guy who greeted me at the door. He was old. He was 50. <laughs> and uh, he says, come on in. It's really nice to see you. What's your name? Why don't you come on over here and have a cup of coffee with us? And I thought, he's only being nice to me because he knows my mother. And then this woman, she was a housewife. She was way old. She was 40. And she says, you know, if you want to find a way up and out of your problems, we'll share with you how we did it. And I thought, well, she must know my mother, too, because she's being awful nice to me. She doesn't even know me. And I was sober five years before I found out that day. Neither one of them knew who my mother was. They did that because somebody took the time to do that for them. And the thing I remember is my first meeting is this guy got up and said, get a sponsor. And like I said in the sponsorship meeting the other day, uh, this morning, I picked my sponsor because I was stupid, because I was sick, because I didn't know any better. And I looked around, all these people are old, they must all be sober. Wrong. Most of them weren't sober. They all must have one of these sponsors. Wrong. But here I am, I have nothing, no money, nowhere to go. At least I want a sponsor. Damn, I don't want to walk out the only one without a sponsor. That's really bad. I can handle no underwear, but being the only one without a sponsor, I'd really be left out. So I turned to the guy after the meeting. I says, will you be my sponsor? And he says, yeah. He's been my sponsor ever since that day. And uh, people say, how do you pick a sponsor? I said, hell, just ask somebody. Don't make a big deal out of it. And I go, man, is he cocky. He's a cocky guy, isn't he? Jesus. But that's my experience. And this guy seemed to be too happy. Too happy. He, and he was about the only guy in the room that was my age, about nine months older than me. He got sober when he's 20. He's 52 now. And... Uh, you know how everything's exaggerated and you're sick and everything's in slow motion when you're, you're new and you're burnt out. And it just seemed like this guy was too happy. He says, you want to go out for coffee? Yahoo? Yahoo was like, damn. He was like Disneyland happy. You know, I was like, it's Friday night. You can't be that happy about not drinking. I mean, I know you mean well, but. And he sat there and he explained what he did. He said, I have a sponsor I talk to on a regular basis. I try to hit a meeting every day. I have a home group I go to every week. I, I have taken the steps. I do this jail meeting on Wednesdays. And he says, I read this book and I try to follow the directions and do what it says to do. And he hands it to me and says, you might want to try this. And I looked through this book and I thought, there's not a picture in this book. <laughs> you would think they'd have... Like one of the co-founders passed out in the bathtub in here. Like one of those diet ads. Here's Bill drunk. Here's Bill sober. Check that out. I got to get some. <laughs> All words on paper. I have no underwear. You don't give people with no underwear and no shirt and no socks and looking funny much direction. Because they don't take it well. But he shared with me what he did, and I came around for 89 days. I went back to drinking. I stayed sober four months, went back to drinking. Five months went back to drinking. And there were times where I thought, I got it now. I got it.
got it. I don't want to drink. I feel okay. I've got it. And I walked out of a meeting that I chaired, went and got a bottle of MD 2020 and drank it. And I thought, you're crazy. You just act like you've never been to A in your life. What the hell's wrong with you? You must be one of those people that are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. That's you. Yeah, I knew nothing was ever going to work out. I just, I just knew it. And I went through a hospital for alcoholism. A week out of there, I was drunk. I'm out, I'm out of my mind. I mean, I want to stay sober. I can't stop. I can't. I can't stop. And I go back to AA intermittently knowing I was just going to stay till my mind dried up. And I was, poof, I was gone again. You know, I came to AA off Skid Row. And I couldn't see what my problem was. I couldn't see it. There was a woman who heard my story and she said, you know, I lived out in the suburbs. And if I would have been where you were at, I could have seen what was wrong with me. I go, you don't get it. I was there and I couldn't see it. I was in the middle of it. I, was, I couldn't see it. And uh, I come back to stay sober, not knowing. On October the 5th, 1978, I'm 23 years old. I'm in the worst shape of my life, and I'm about to begin a spiritual journey, and I don't know it. Didn't look like a spiritual journey. I didn't know that I was going to stay sober. I did not make a conscious choice to say, I am not going to drink and go to AA, because I know I'm trying to blot out the intolerable situation and die an alcoholic death, or... I'm going to do this spiritual way of life. Are you kidding me? I didn't know anything about any of that. All I know was here I am again in AA, and I'm in my sponsor's car after the meeting. And he says, Joe, I want to thank you. You helped save my life this past year. What? How could I save your life? (laughs) And he says, well, he says, my mother died of leukemia, and I made a deal with God that if she lives, I'll stay sober. She dies the hell with my home group, my sponsor, everybody. I'm going back. And he said, she died, and I was ready to go drink, and I saw what it was doing to you, how it was tearing your life up. He said, thanks. I want to thank you. You teach me a lot. Now, here's a man thanking me for saving his life. You know the way I saw it? He's using me. He's using me. That was the beginning of my spiritual journey. He's using me. I walked away from his car thinking, you think you're so smart. I didn't say this to his face. I was afraid of him. You think you're so smart. I'm going to do everything you do in AA. I'm going to smoke the same Benson and Hedges cigarettes you smoke. Tell the same stupid jokes you tell night after night. I'm going to go to the same meetings you go to. I'm going to do everything you do. I'm going to even read that stupid book. And when it doesn't work out, I could say, told you so. You're wrong. Now, who's helping who? (laughs) Been sober ever since that day, October 5th, 1978. Now, did I know that I was making a decision to get on a spiritual path that was going to lead to a higher power that was going to solve my problem? Of course not. But that's what God knew I understood. And I didn't remember this until I was sober about 23 years. And I, I, I was amazed that I didn't remember this. Ten days sober. My sponsor watched me go in and out of AA. He goes, look, I'm not a taxi service. You get here, I'll make sure you get home. But I'm not coming to pick you up. I says, okay. He wanted to see if I was willing to go to any lengths. So I get to the meeting. The meeting's over. And I'm in his car. I said, well, I got here, Mike. Can you ride me home? He goes, yeah. Yeah, I'll ride you home. And we're sitting in his car. He was cool. He, got, he was just cool. Man, he had a leather jacket on, polyester shirt, them big, big uh, collar, you know what I mean? He had a 1972 Nova with mag wheels, eight track, and 
air-conditioned dad. He was cool. He was just too cool. And, you know, here's a guy that I think, this guy's Disneyland goofy. I'm, I'm glad he's giving me a ride. But I'm sitting in his car outside the A clubhouse, and he gets his keys out, and he sticks them in the ignition, and before he turns it on, he stops, and he looks at me, and he goes, I need to tell you something as your sponsor. I go, well, what do you need to tell me? He says, I need to tell you that if you make staying sober and being an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous the most important thing in your life, you will never have to worry about money. You will never have to worry about a job. You will never have to worry about relationships. All these things will be taken care of for you, I promise you. And for a few seconds I thought, He's telling me the truth. There is no reason for him to lie to me. And a few seconds later, it was like, it was fleeting, but it was like, come on, man, I got laundry to do. Let's go. You know, it was just, but that, and this was my approach to this spiritual way of life. I'll show you. You promised. I'll show you. You promised. You know, I just like schizophrenic recovery or something. And, you know, just, oh. But that's how I got it. And I got to 30 days sober. He says, I said, I'm getting ready to go. I'm ready to drink again. And I know what that feels like. What did you do when you got like that? He says, I wrote that inventory. You've been reading that book, haven't you? I go, yeah, but I don't get it. I, I, I don't understand what, what it means. You know, I, it, we listed people, institutions, and principles with whom we were angry. What's that mean? He said, that just means... We listed the people, places, and things that piss us off. I said, why doesn't it say that? He said, it does. And I went, oh, <laughs> it hurts my head. Why don't they just say what they mean? I mean, I could read it, but I couldn't get it. And uh, he says, write those things down that make you mad. Write down the things that make you uncomfortable, the things you're afraid of. He says, that stuff sexually, write that down. The stuff you're never going to tell anybody, write that down. And I thought, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> this isn't good. I mean, I'm kind of perverse. <laughs> so I went and wrote that inventory. And, uh, you know, I, we were talking about this earlier. In the 70s, we talked about the big book where I'm from in Cincinnati. And they said we're big book fanatics just because we talked about it because a lot of people didn't read it. And then I watched this swing in the 80s and 90s to big book seminars. Whoa. Whoa. And I sponsor these guys, and they come with to me, and they give me this thing. I go, what is this? They go, well, it's a guide to the four-step. I said, you need a guide to the guide? <laughs> I said, let me see that. And it looks like a computer flow chart. Two resentments equal one fear and one ego squared or something like that. It's like, oh, no, no. I... Don't get me wrong. I know these people mean well. But this is something for sick people to get well. It's got to be something very simple. It's not the form. It's not the lines. Mm. Mm. It's the content. It's what's in the inventory. You know, I read that inventory to my sponsor. And I got to the sex part. And I thought, oh, man. I never thought I'd tell anybody about the buffalo from Billings, Montana. <laughs> And he goes, uh, all right, well, come on. I did it with the buffalo. And he goes, uh, 
What did you tell the buffalo? I says, you mean where I'm at fault? Yeah, he's going, where were you at fault? I said, well, I lied to the buffalo. He said, what was the lie? I love you. <laughs> now, we laugh about that in AA, but everybody's got a buffalo. You know what I mean? Now, let me ask you this. Does it matter what column the buffalo's in? Nah. Nah. What matters is... I did it with the buffalo. That's what matters, you know. And I've listened to a couple hundred fifth steps since I've been sober. And I always used to think I was this perverse, weird, wacko guy. And uh, after listening to a couple hundred of them, I'm pretty much a lightweight. <laughs> there have some I've listened to where I thought, if I ever drink again, I'm trying that one. That is, that is some creative stuff, Jack. I am going to try that. That's, woo! I couldn't even come up with that on my own. Whoa! And uh, uh, and I went on with the rest of the steps as much as I knew how. You know, and I couldn't see where I was at fault at this. We need fault. Fault. I'm getting screwed. Everybody else gets everything but me. What do you mean fault? And he talked about himself. And by him talking about himself, it allowed me to see myself. I thought, oh, my God, I never saw myself that way. And I started to see that I was the I was the problem maker. I was the guy setting myself up to be unhappy. It wasn't any of these people. It was me. I'm the guy that's sick from alcoholism and with the rotten attitude. Nobody did it to me. And until somebody shared their life with me, I didn't know that. And I went on to make them. I went on and I, I asked this God to remove the things that were blocking me from being useful to Him and my fellows. And I started to make some type of amends to my mother and my father and my brother and ex-girlfriends and employers and all that. And my life changed. It changed in ways I never thought possible. And I'm not going to take you through every day of the last 27 plus years. All I can say is I tapped into a power greater than myself through Alcoholics Anonymous by taking the action that other sober members of A take that relieved the obsession to drink and rendered me happy, whole, and useful. And I never thought that would happen for somebody like me. I was going to meetings, uh, was sober a couple years, was active in AA. My sponsor showed me how to work with other alcoholics, how to talk to other alcoholics, how to carry the message. Just one hell of an AA member. I thought, if I could just be half the AA member that guy is, I'm going to be all right. And I was sober a couple years, got married. I just couldn't believe that. You know, that's, that flabbergasted me. And I wouldn't date me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Tells you a lot about my self-esteem. And uh, learned how to fly a plane when I was sober a few years. And, and uh, my wife had a couple babies. They're born a year apart on the same day, November 20th, 1983, 1984. And the youngest boy was born crippled. His feet were on upside down. I mean, just really twisted looking. And... Uh, I went to the AA meeting that night. I, I, I asked my sponsor's sponsor who happened to me. I said, Bob, I, you know, where's the crippled feet step? I mean, what do you do here? And he goes, ah, oh, he says, you're not going to have to worry about any of that. He says, uh, your job is just to enjoy them while you're in their life. God's going to make sure they get what they need. You just keep going to Alcoholics Anonymous and working with these trunks. I promise you all that stuff will work out. And uh, 
There was, I was, uh, he was about a year old, and I was working a lot of hours at work. I was afraid I was going to lose my job. I was in the fear mode. I was afraid. I was about seven years sober, and seven days a week, 12 hours a day, seven at night to seven in the morning. You know, God, I need, I need. And I get off in the morning, and I'm, I'm burnt out. I worked four months without a day off. I'm burnt out. And my mother-in-law was coming over to watch the kids so we could get a few hours sleep. They were little. And there's this guy that walks, he's coming up the sidewalk. He's parked the wrong way on the wrong side of the street. He's got a briefcase and he's staggering. I go, oh no, not a drunk salesman, 7.15 in the morning. I'm going to tell him, get the hell out of here, pal. I'm going to bed, you know. But something inside of me says, give him 10 seconds. And he walks up and he says, does Vanessa, my wife's name is Vanessa, does Vanessa live here? And I go, well, yeah, what can I do for you? He says, well, I'm from the shrine. And I heard that she has a little boy that has a problem. And we would like to help her with her problem. Can I talk to her? Uh, Oh, yeah. Come on in. And nobody I knew called the shrine. And he sits down. And the reason he slurred his speech is because he had cancer and the radiation had dried his saliva glands out in his mouth. Had I not given that guy ten seconds, it would have changed everything. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many times God sent me help. But because I judged him and sized him up and told him to get the hell out of here, I ran the help off that I needed. And I thought, oh, my God, probably more times than I care to really know about. And uh, there's no way to forecast how life turns out. That little boy is uh, now this big. And he's a junior at the University of Cincinnati. He's got a double major in German and aerospace engineering. (laughs) <laughs> he never needed his feet. <laughs> and I, I tried showing him manly things like painting and raking leaves and manly stuff. I get so mad at him. Here, Bob, let me show you how to edge with this edger. And she just go up to you, get an edge, and just start walking with it. You got it? And he goes, yeah. And he'd get there. And I'd say, let me show you that one more time, Bob. And i show him again. He'd get up there and say, I'm starting to lose my patience now. It's like, I don't know what other way to show him. How can, you know, he went up to do it again. I said, give me the goddamn weed eater. And then by this time, he's 11. I got him crying. The spiritual giant that I am. He's crying. <sighs> I was smoking at the time. I went over and sat down on my mom's patio. And I said, God, Joe, you need to calm down. It's a weed eater. Jesus. I'm smoking a cigarette. I'm drinking a Coke. And I'm going, oh, the handle's set up for me. I'm six foot one. Maybe if I move the handle for somebody that's his size. Hey, Bob. What, Dad? Let me see the weed ears. And I adjusted the handle for his arm length, and he did it just fine. I go, oh, son. I'm just so sorry. I, I didn't know. You know, just a few minutes ago, I said, how can somebody so smart be such a blockhead? I don't know, Dan. I I don't like when you yell at me like that. And now I'm apologizing to him. He goes, I guess this means you're the blockhead now, right? I go, yeah, I guess it does. I I guess it does. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes I've been overbearing as a parent, and and maybe I wasn't equipped to be a parent. I don't know. You know, sometimes I've done some off-the-wall stuff. But A, always give me the ability to go back and admit when I was wrong. 
And uh, I think if I've given my, my kids any kind of message, it's that you can make a lot of mistakes and come back and admit that you're wrong, that you can be as human as you need to be. Um, i got about uh, eight minutes here. Be right on 60. When I was here 13 years ago, our boys were eight and nine. And I had no idea that what was going to happen in the next 13 years was going to happen. Uh, I was sitting on the patio one day of our home. We have a home. It's pretty neat. It's got two yards front and the back. That's, <laughs> it's a long way from that roach-infested mattress. I like where I'm at. And uh, we were going to go to Florida on vacation, and I work in a boiler room. Help all things, boilers. And uh, I'm really white, and I thought, I need to get some sun or... I'm going to get burned up down there in Florida. So I'm out there. i got oil on me, and I'm listening to the stereo. i got some tea, and I'm reading this travel magazine. And it was a story about a group of people from Starbucks Coffee that traveled to Mount Kilimanjaro, and they climbed to raise money for an organization called CARE. Oh, what? What? <laughs> Look at that, man. That's something, man. Look at that. Mm. I'd like to do that one day. Well, why don't you go do it? Well, why one day? Why, why, why not right now? Uh... Yeah, why not right now? So I thought, I think I'm going to go do this. Why? I've already been to SeaWorld. <laughs> thought I'd try this. My wife come home, I go, you know, Al and Oz love us because like she was saying, you never know what we're going to do. My wife comes from grocery shopping. She says, how are you doing? I go, I'm going to Kilimanjaro. You want to go? <laughs> she just looked at me like, I can't believe you said that. I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love for you to go with me, but if not, I'm going. This really looks like I would really like to do this. 24 miles up, 20 miles down, 100-foot glaciers on the equator in Central Africa. Yeah, yeah. How do you do that? Well, I just start emailing people. And uh, my son saw me get an email. The oldest one was 13. He said, who do you know in Tanzania and Kenya? I go, well, I'm talking to people. I'm thinking about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. He says, can I go? I go, well, let's find out. Says you have to be 14. That's next year. Let's do it. Let's do it. I didn't know that when I was here, when they were eight and nine. I didn't know that. So the next year we went. And we got over there and we got up to about 15,000 feet and he got altitude sickness. And, uh, we had to, we hopped up that one day. We did about nine miles before we got to that altitude. And he got sick, and we had to walk those same nine miles back down. And you could tell he felt dejected. He felt like he had ruined our trip. And uh, I says, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. You know, pounding, headache, it feels terrible. I said, just keep talking to me. He says, I don't want to talk to you. I said, I don't care what you want, just keep talking to me. I'm not, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Come on, let's just walk. And I asked him, I said, Bob, I said, if you would have known last year when you asked to go that we weren't going to make it to the top, would you have come? He says, nah, Dad. He said, I probably wouldn't. I said, really? I said, you mean you would have missed out on seeing the jungle at the bottom of this mountain and meeting people from the Chugga tribe and going out on the Serengeti Plains to see the Maasai warriors? You would have missed seeing the red light district in Amsterdam. <laughs> All because you weren't going to get to the top? He goes, yeah, Dad. I says, I don't know if you're going to remember this or not, but I owe you this as your, as your father. Son, sometimes life's not about getting to the top. 
sometime life is about being happy on the side of the mountain where you're at. And I thought, where the hell did Wino learn to come up with that at? <laughs> and it hit me. I heard my sponsor sponsor say that seven years before that. He said sobriety is like living on the side of the mountain. There's no plateau. A teaches to be happy with where we're at on the side of the mountain, wherever we're at. And I didn't know that was going to come out of my mouth halfway around the world with my son. Didn't know that. And uh, I went back there a couple years ago to do it, and I did it. I went all the way to the top by myself. I had a guide, a cook, and six porters. People said, you're crazy. I go, yeah, but it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. Um, I felt bad about taking my oldest boy to something like that and not doing anything with my youngest boy. I mean, he was crippled. I mean, what do you do? I mean, you look at his feet. They look like big flat square boxcar feet with all these scars and operations and all that. And I asked him if he wanted to do what I did with his older brother. He goes, nah. He says, I don't think so, Dad. He says, but at that time, he had taken a national proficiency test in German. He was a freshman in high school, or sophomore, and he scored 20th in the nation in German proficiency. And I, I said, would you like to go to Germany? He said, yeah. I says, well, if we start planning now, a year ahead of time, we can put this together. I know how to do that. And we can go. You want to do that? He goes, yeah. And then I thought, oh, God, what am I going to do with my wife and my oldest boy? Oh, well, the oldest boy did well in French. I said, would you guys like to go to France? I says, I'll tell you what. Why don't we all go to Europe on the same day? You start with your mother in Paris, and we'll start here in Zurich, Switzerland. And in 10 days, we'll all meet in The Hague in the Netherlands. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. There's a point to this story. <laughs> my, I asked my wife, what are you going to do after the third day? They go, oh, we're just going to wing it. We'll see you there. We'll just go. We're going to go. You get on a train. You can get a place anywhere. So and I, I had an a, a, a itinerary where me and my boys stayed in, in Zurich and Interlochen and Lucerne. Then we went to Munich, went to Dachau, the death camps, and just unbelievable. And after, after a few days in uh, Munich, I said, well, we have a couple days to kill here, Bob. Where would you like to go before we go meet your mom and your brother? He said, I'd really like to go to Brussels. Let's go to Brussels. So we're going on the way, and he says, there's this big church in Cologne. Can we get off and see the church? I said, well, yeah. So we got off and looked at this big church in Cologne, Germany. A couple hours later, we got back on and we're riding. I says, Bob, I was looking at this little map, and Bruges, Belgium is a city that's closer to where we're going when we meet your mom and your brother. Why don't we go there instead? He goes, okay. So we get off the train, and it's the first train station in Europe. They have no currency exchange. I go, oh. What am I going to do now? I, don't, I can't exchange money. So I talked the cabbie into taking me to the bank. And uh, we got a place to stay. And there's thousands of people out on the square in Bruges, Belgium in July. Thousands. And I says, Bob, I had a dream. I saw your mom last night. I says, I just miss her and your brother so much. I haven't been away from them this long in years. And uh, he said, yeah, Dad, but even if we saw them, uh, we wouldn't be able to find them. Look at all these people. There's, there's too many people here. I said, well, I was just thinking out loud. You know, I miss your mom and your brother. And we're walking around, and my knee starts hurting. I said, well, let's take a rest here for about a half hour. My knee's killing me. And then a little while later, I said, let's go up here and eat some mussels at this outdoor cafe. And we're eating this bucket of mussels, a kilo of mussels. 
and I get up to pay the maitre d' and down the street, I hear my oldest boy's voice going, Hey, Killer Joe. And I thought, who the hell knows me in Belgium? <laughs> and I looked down the street, and it was my wife and my oldest son. And I looked at Bob, and he gave me that psycho look like... <laughs> and I said, we didn't have to find them. They found us. I mean, of all the cities in Europe, on that day, at that time, hey, Killer Joe. And that's not the miracle of the story. The miracle of the story is they had a bad time in Paris. They left. They didn't like it. And they went to Bruges for five days. And they thought, we're going to go find Joe and Bob because I think they're staying up there in the Netherlands. And they went up there looking for us. And when they went to come back and couldn't find us, there was a gas leak on the railway, and they were delayed by five hours. And they came back, and my boys told my wife, hey, let's go up this street. We've never gone up this street before. And there we were. There we were. And my whole life flashed in front of me. It was like I suddenly realized that every step that we took had to happen the way it had to happen. It couldn't have happened any other way. Was the currency exchange not being in a train station good or bad? Neither. It was necessary to slow us down so we'd meet. Was the fact that my knee was bothering me and I had to sit down for a half hour and rest good or bad? Neither. It was necessary to slow us down so we could meet. Was the time in Paris a good or bad time? Neither. They left on the day they were supposed to. Was the gas leak on the railway good or bad? Neither. It was necessary so we could meet in a town we've never been in and a continent we've never been to. And my whole life in sobriety flashed in my face. There were times I've been so hard on myself for being a bastard of a father. I beat myself up terribly for not handling things like I thought I should. There's times where I thought I hadn't been too good of a husband because I just didn't act like I thought I should. But on that day I realized I could not have done anything any different than what I did. I had to hurt the people's feelings I hurt. I had to do the things that I did because it was necessary for my spiritual growth. I couldn't have done it any other way. If I could have, I would have. And if you people are new in your first year of sobriety, I want to make you a promise that if you make staying sober and being an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous the most important thing in your life, you will never have to worry about money. You will never have to worry about a job. You will never have to worry about relationships. They'll all be taken care of for you. I promise you. But you will worry. You'll worry because it's necessary. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.